You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health Podcast. I have Dr. Ronald McLennan, founder of Access Genetics and Oral DNA Labs. Uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the oral microbiome and periodontal disease and uh, other conditions of the mouth. So, Ronald, thanks for coming. My pleasure. Thank you for having me this afternoon. Yeah, I mean, it, you know, even the, the microbiome is niching. Some are gut people, some are oral people. Why, uh, why the interest in the microbiome and why specifically the oral part of it? Well, I think firstly, um, in medicine broadly, we've come to recognize that the microbiome, whether it's in the mouth, in the gut, or on our skin, now duly has to be recognized as an organ in our body. It's essential to health. And we have seen in the last few years that the embrace of understanding the microbiome and those organs or those areas of the body uh, very much dictate and have provided solutions to diseases that previously were really difficult to manage. We'll talk about the oral microbiome in a moment, but if you just think about changes in the gut microbiome, explanations for inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's disease, and other conditions have been really difficult to treat. And now we have solutions where we focus not on the intestine, but we focus on changes in the gut flora. The mouth, on the other hand, is, of course, an entry point to the body. It's actually on the outside of the body when you think about it. So there's continuity between the outside world and um, the human body at the interface of the mouth. So okay. to a great extent, the bad bacteria that we would be concerned about come from our environment. We talk about the exchange between humans through intimate contact. We talk about the exchange of bacteria that come off foods and, of course, just off of surfaces in their environment. So the presumption is, is that when we're young, when we're healthy, we are in a state of eubiosis. That word means good state of life. Um, and over time, through bad habits in our, our behaviors, our diet, our lack of exercise, and just the fact that we're getting older, we progressively shift to a state of dysbiosis or bad life. 
The microbiome is a reflection of that. The microbiome is a compilation of many, many species of microorganisms. And for the most part, in the state of health, the good bacteria predominate. The bad bacteria are either suppressed or non-existent. Over time and under conditions of stress or coincident disease, and we'll talk about a couple examples in a moment, uh, we start to see the emergence of the bad bacteria. We'll use the word pathogen to describe those. So we can strive to look at the microbiome in its entirety, or we can, frankly, look at just the bad bugs. And if we can measure those bad bugs, and I use the word bugs to, as a synonym with bacteria, then we start to see where diseases start to occur. Now, there's actually a lot question. of disease. Please, go ahead. A quick, a quick question. Okay, so in the gut, for instance, like C. difficile, Supposedly, it's there all the time. It's just in low numbers. And when uh, there's a dysbiosis, then it, then it rises to power. But w was it a pathogen or was it just there the whole time? But in small numbers, it maybe it produced metabolites that weren't harmful and maybe it was commensal. I mean, do you, I think, with the oral microbiome, is that what's going on? Like, there's no such thing really as a pathogen. It just depends on who gains power. And, and perhaps that, that microbe doesn't produce you know, metabolites and interact in a positive way with the community in the mouth? Well, there's a simple answer and a more sophisticated answer. The simple answer is we believe that for the most part, these bacteria are resident in our mouth, in our gut all the time. They're just at low, low levels. And so whatever the bad effects of those bacteria are, they're suppressed and overwhelmed by the coincident presence of neighbors who are good bacteria. Um, it's probably true that in the case of oral pathogens, they came from the outside. So we're not born into this world with a mouth that already has resident back bacteria. They come from our parents, they come from our environment, and so we're seeded, uh, and the microbiome becomes inoculated, if you want to use that term, with those bacteria. Um, so they are there, and disease emerges typically when there is a suppression of the good bacteria, then thereby facilitating or allowing the bad bacteria to grow out. And so we can see this in serial test measures that we perform. A younger person has lower levels of these bad bacteria, and five years later, they're at slightly higher levels on average, and so on and so forth. And we've actually developed some stochastic models that show that patients who look normal in the dental examination start to show the early signs of periodontal disease, but well before you can see it with your eyes, we see that very purposeful shift from good bacteria to bad bacteria. And at a certain no, point, they get to a threshold level and disease is present. That's great. Yeah, that's good to know because it's early detection and perhaps there's an intervention that can be made to uh, bring them back to a healthier state. Well, that becomes a kind of a, a policy issue. And to a great extent, dentistry, not different than physician-based medicine, is not today a focus on prevention. It's more show up with a disease, and then we treat the disease, and then we try to manage it. But we have some programs in place, and they're in the form of basic research that is searching to or striving to figure out ways to make predictions who is going to get disease and who will not, 
and we're using simple tests just to measure bacteria. A lot of bacteria means that person has disease, less bacteria means that they don't, and what are those threshold points that we can then point out, publish, and, and say, look, our goal is to treat young people, keep them out of harm's way with disease by keeping these bacterial levels low. In terms of uh, interventions, have you tried any? Um, what was the intervention and what was the effect? Indeed. Um, so one of the things that is true about dentistry is that the toolbox by which dentists reach into and, and treat periodontal disease is rather limited. The, um, the gold standard is something called scaling and root planing, and this is a process of mechanical removal of the biofilm. The biofilm is the term that describes where the, micro, the microbiome resides. It's a, it's a physical entity that's stuck to the surface of the teeth or the epithelium uh, surrounding the teeth. So that's the, the main tool in the toolbox. But then in the past, people have used systemic antibiotics. They have used local antibiotics. More recently, they've used a variety of chemical hygiene products. So you can think of mouthwashes. People have turned to lasers. And I would add, most recently, people have turned very intelligently to the idea of changing the microbiome by changing the composition of the bacteria, essentially replacing the bad bacteria by overpopulating with the introduction of good bacteria. Think of yogurt, for example, how yogurt is there to soothe the stomach, soothe the intestinal tract by replacing it with lactobacillus. Well, we can do similar things through the use of probiotics. Further of the, of beyond probiotics is the fact that there's something called a prebiotic. Bacteria, just like ourselves, have preferred foods. So if we change the nutritional component that goes onto the microbiome, we can actually shift from the bad bacterial growth to the good bacterial growth, thereby essentially treating the patient by just changing the biofilm changing the microbiome. So we don't personally in a clinical laboratory engage in that type of therapeutic treatments. However, we do the testing for many clinical trials in a number of small studies. So we are privy increasingly to all kinds of innovations in the way in which we treat oral diseases such as periodontitis. Yeah, that's great. Well, when you say... Um you're characterizing the oral microbiome, or I'm, I'm using that word. What are you looking at? Are you looking at um, just the prevalence of species, you know, with whole genome sequencing or just 16S? Are you looking at metabolomics? Are you looking at transcriptomics? Like, how deep are you going and what are you looking at? And maybe we'll get into why those are important or not. Sure. So the answer to the question is we're doing all of the above, but for routine and daily and clinical applications, we are using a very precise, very accurate quantitative detection of the bad bacteria. We look at a profile today of 11 of those worst actors. Now, what's the justification for that? Well, firstly, we know that the presence of these bacteria at various levels or various quantities can be tightly correlated with disease severity. So the dentist has essentially a reference point that says, if I see some abnormalities through a visual examination, I can marry those up with these bacterial levels, and they can then classify that patient in terms of mild, moderate, or severe disease, and they can make their treatment choices accordingly. 
In terms of more advanced testing that's under development but not currently available for routine or daily clinical application, the analysis of the oral microbiome looks at a, a scattering of the good and the bad bacteria and looks at the relative levels of those two. We're still working to establish what are the normal or the reference ranges for those respective levels. So that's a tougher project, and I think others in this space, other doing, others doing research in the oral microbiome would have to agree that um, we are somewhat hampered in not really knowing what is health versus disease. So the analysis of the entirety of the oral microbiome is still a bit in its adolescence. So today, you know, there's a heavy reliance, whether through clinical trials or through um, the rank-and-file dentists using our tests, just to measure the bad bacteria. And if I can borrow the analogy of the canary in the coal mine, we use canaries to because they're very sensitive indicators of, you know, noxious gases in a coal mine, for example. Well, we can use the serial measurement of these pathogens as a very sensitive and, pre and predictive marker of where that patient is on disease versus health. Are the, um, are the pathogens even the same species or strain in different people? I thought that um, you know, a healthy or a non-healthy microbiome can have different actors and different prevalences and still be either healthy or not healthy. Where have you found that you know, these 11 strains, yes, they're, they're either there or not, and that indicates disease or not? Well, your question is actually a, a fairly sophisticated one. So I think the first part of the question would relate to whether or not looking at 11 pathogens are representative of all of the pathogens. So are there 12th, 13th, 20th, 30th pathogens present, and are they different between individuals? Uh, I can answer that in part by saying that after doing nearly a quarter million tests on patients, the profiles fall into very predictable patterns. There's a, quite a variance in those patterns, but almost every patient showing disease has some representation of these 11 pathogens. So they are good indicators of disease. Now, the second part of your question is sophisticated in so much as some of the selected bacteria described as being pathogenic actually represent at the subspecies level a combination of good and bad actors. For example, there is a bacteria referred to as Fusobacterium nucleatum, or FN for short. Essentially, everybody has this in their mouth. And when disease comes upon a person, for example, when they, a person develops diabetes, FN will rise to higher levels. So in the state of health, we refer to this bacteria as a commensal. It lives in a state of peace or non-disease with that individual or that host. But when stress is upon that individual, FN will grow to high levels. It becomes pathogenic, and it can affect organs throughout the body. Well, looking at FN, Fusobacterium nucleatum, is, is insufficient, we know. No, that in fact there are subspecies, typically between five and eight, that reside in a given human. And knowing the ratios and the proportions of those subspecies is an emerging area of, of testing interest. Um, it is not to say that any single subspecies is going to offset the effect of the bad actors, but we do believe that people have different clinical courses and hence disease severity 
based on the relative proportion of these subspecies. So we're moving not only in the direction of looking at more bacteria species, but actually having to go down to the subspecies level. You asked the question about looking at DNA sequence, and uh, indeed, quantitative polymerase chain reaction, as an example, is essentially looking at the sequence level. The primers are designed to be species-specific and sequence-specific. Next-generation sequencing is on the, uh, the horizon for routine clinical use. Its clear detriment, however, is that it, it fails to be sufficiently quantitative to be useful clinically. Well, what, what even defines something as being pathogenic or not? Is it the sure. metabolites it produces that have a negative effect on, you know, our somatic cells? Is it that, you know, certain pathogens actively uh, outcompete beneficial bacteria? Like, what, what's the definition of pathogenesis? Well, the simplest thing to think about is uh, a wound on your finger, but I won't use that example. But the interface between our immunity, our immune response, played out through inflammation, swelling, redness, bleeding, tissue destruction. Those are all manifestations of the pathogenicity of, of bacteria. Bacteria, like our own cells, produce proteins. Those proteins are secreted across the, the cell membrane, and those proteins in the surrounding environment will either affect the immune cells, i.e. causing them to be suppressed, or those proteins may actually act on the local tissue to cause tissue destruction. Now, we see that in the form of a wound, what we call pus, right? That's dead tissue that's being dissolved by a proteolysis of both the combination of human cells and the bacterial cells. So these proteins are collectively referred to as virulence factors. And we characterize pathogens based on our understanding in basic science and basic culture uh, experiments of what these virulence factors are. P. gingivalis, uh, Porphyromonas gingivalis, is a particular bacteria that's being much discussed in science and, frankly, in, in, in popular science. Why is this important? Well, P. gingivalis is probably one of the more uh, august um, pathogens that cause periodontal disease. Local inflammation in or around the tooth, the gums, causing bleeding, tissue destruction there. But those P. gingivalis can also leach into the systemic circulation. And when it does so, it can find residence in the heart, in the pancreas, the liver. And more recently, it's been described how P. gingivalis actually makes its way to the brain. P. gingivalis produces, as one example, a virulence factor called gingipanes. This is a protease. It's a, it's a protein produced by the bacterium which dissolves local proteins. And gingipanes, when they act upon human tissues, can cause the resulting degraded protein to be misfolded. And it has been hypothesized that gingipanes are a cause of neurofibrillary plaques, which are characteristic of Alzheimer's disease. Yeah, I've heard that certain bacteria in the mouth are showing up in atherosclerotic plaques, you know, in the blood vessels and, like you said, in various other parts of the body. Mm -hmm. That's correct. So to cite the example that I use, we collectively refer to the effect of oral infections 
on systemic disease. You cited the example of atherosclerosis. Live bacteria have been identified within the atheromatous plaque within the arteries of the heart. Some of these bacteria are actually viable, so they can be retrieved and, and grow in culture. But it's believed that these bacteria, when they localize to distant sites, cause or evoke inflammation. So when we talk about heart disease, it's not just about the deposition of lipids in the, in the coronary arteries. It's the inflammation associated with that, that lipid deposition. And it's believed that the inflammation is caused by the effects of these bacteria. Follow that train of logic at any organ in the body. The localization of oral bacteria in the beta cells of the pancreas cause those beta islet cells to become inflamed. That leads to a relative state of insulin deficiency, and that is believed to be a source or a cause of type 2 diabetes. And you can basically go throughout any organ in the human body and think of a chronic disorder, and you can start to construct a model where oral bacteria are involved in inciting chronic inflammation that then leads to one of the large killers of, of humankind, heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, and yes, even cancers. So it sounds like preserving the integrity of the mouth and obviously the whole digestive pathway of the gut, you know, all the way through is critical. But, you know, sticking with the mouth, it sounds like, again, preserving the integrity of the mouth is critical. Otherwise, it allows all kinds of these bacteria to migrate to spots where they, you know, take up a pathogenic role where they shouldn't be essentially. Yes, and if, if anything, um, it, it, it turns our attention away from interventions where we're actually trying to keep those diseases at bay, and as we talked about earlier, to focus on finding the earliest indications of that disease and stopping the process uh, before you start to see overt clinical signs. So campaigns that start uh, with pe people in their adolescence and start to, to, to look to see, do you have the early signs of periodontal disease? When you do the math, with almost 100 million Americans involved with periodontal disease, and you start to translate then its effect on heart disease, diabetes, Alzheimer's, you see that there is a real need to start acting sooner. And so the, the cause and the charge is on to dentistry to start really embracing prevention as opposed to just treating established disease. And, you know, maybe it's obvious, but what is periodontal disease? What will the average person experience and say, ugh, they'll be told they have periodontal disease, but what are the, mm -hmm. you know, what happens in the person? Do their gums bleed? Like, what are the signs of it? So periodontal disease, the periodontal tissues, uh, by description of the word, are the tissues that surround the base of the tooth. The tooth is embedded into the, the jaw bones, there is a ligamentous tissue that supports that tooth, and then the soft tissue, the gums, surround the tooth. When there is in pockets of infection down below the gum line that involve these varieties of bad actor uh, bacteria, then we have what's called a polymicrobial infection down below the, the gum line. Those diseases or those infections are very subtle. Most people do not complain of of pain. So that's not what drives them into the dentist. In fact, pointedly, they're much more likely to go because their teeth are discolored than because 
they know to have gum disease. Now, they might be forewarned if somebody says, gee, you have bad breath or halitosis is the medical term. Uh, so that might be a reason to go in. But usually periodontal disease is asymptomatic. Now, when they floss their teeth, if they do so, they will see that the bleeding occurs. A bleeding, the bleeding that occurs is a manifestation of the inflammation, which is the body's response to this infection. Bleeding is due to the blood vessels are being very friable and, and delicate. And so when the floss goes down there, it fractures those blood vessels, the bleeding results. That's a byproduct of the fact that there's a lot of swelling, a lot of inflammation, some local tissue destruction. That's a hallmark that a patient can see at their home while brushing their teeth, while caring uh, for their teeth at home. The dentist sees this and takes an x-ray. If the x-ray surrounding the tooth shows loss of bone and bone support around that tooth, that along with bleeding, that along with the physical or the visual observation of swelling are the clinical signs. We enter in the scene with a test that measures the type and quantities of the bacteria which are evoking that inflammation and causing that tissue destruction. So we would like to argue that x-rays and testing and the visual examination are three essential components of making the diagnosis. That's what periodontitis is. And has it been observed in people that, you know, they, they brush, they use like in-between tooth brushes, I don't know what they call them, they floss, they you know, mm -hmm. they take a lot better care of their mouth. Um, at first, it seems like that would cause a lot of bleeding, but I would guess perhaps those uh, those vessels that are near the surface that you said are friable heal up? Or you know, That's like, true. I guess, That's I guess true. what I'm asking is, what are ways for people to make an intervention to help themselves? Well, it, it, you make a really good point. It's probably true that it's insufficient simply to brush one's teeth. Flossing, although, you know, there's been some debates in in the popular literature that it may not actually add much. Um, that plus other types of mouthwashes will help to suppress or keep those bacterial levels uh, at, lower, at lower amounts. But th the simple fact is, is that the flossing helps to break loose or mobilize the uh, buildup of the plaque-like material that's below the gum line. And by mechanically removing that, you've given a head start on the, on the effectiveness of your toothbrush and of your mouthwashes. So the floss is important to get between the teeth and liberate that hard plaque material, which really is nothing more than sort of a, a, a concretized version of this mass of bacteria. So we're debulking uh, the amount of bacteria in the mouth when we floss. So these bacteria that cause periodontal disease, are they, I guess they're trying to set up their own microenvironment, their own niche in which they can flourish. Mm -hmm. Is that is that what happens? Is that what, what plaque is, for instance? It's, a, it's just a, I guess, a yeah. hardened uh, shelter for these kind of bacteria where they can hang out and multiply? So we, we started off with the terms the microbiome, and for simplicity, we'll say that this is, you know, the aggregate of the community of many species of bacteria. How do they actually live? And, and so in the case of periodontal disease, they live below the gum line. That environment is largely uh, devoid of oxygen. So it's an anaerobic environment. So that pre-selects those types of bacteria that can tolerate an anaerobic condition. This 
community is actually very sophisticated. There are layers or strata. There are certain bacteria that love to live adjacent to uh, each other because the metabolome of one species might actually be the nutritional basis of, of, of another species. So when we speak of a eubiosis, we're talking to a great extent about the predominance of streptococcal species that are anaerobic, those are the good bacteria, and then they're seeded, as I suggested earlier, with a smattering of these bad bacteria. If you change the health conditions, uh, i.e., if you have a lot of sugary foods, if you have a lot of other types of uh, dietary components that sort of foster the growth of the bad bacteria, you'll see the shift from the predominance of the good bacteria to that of the pathogenic bacteria. This all occurs in a tightly interconnected community. And when you look at this under a phase contrast microscope, for example, you can actually see structure. There are bacteria that live on the surface of the, of the plaque, and there are others that live closer to the surface of the tooth or to the epithelium. There's those that create a walled off perimeter that serve as a nice barrier. The simple fact is if you know what the concept of an abscess is, then these plaque that live on the uh, subgingival or below the, the gum line uh, areas of the mouth are, are very analogous to that. And when that becomes hardened with some calcium, that's what plaque is uh, when we physically remove it. So in one way, could you consider everything you eat to be a prebiotic just for the, either the good, good team or the bad team? I'm ill-prepared to answer, you know, what are the favored foods of pathogens versus the, the good bacteria. But suffice it to say, they're looking for similar things. But let's just use one example. I referenced Porphyrmonas gingivalis. Well, they love uh, iron-containing uh, foods. And one of the byproducts of, of the breakdown of red blood cells is something called hemin, H-E-M-I-N, and that is a, a nutritional support for P. gingivalis. So inflammation leading to bleeding, you know, ex exacerbates the growth of P. gingivalis, as an example. But I, okay. as I say, almost anything that is part of our nutritional requirements probably has some uh, effect on the microbiome in the mouth and, uh, of course, in the gut. So what's... Um you said you're able to um, sequence what's going on with the oral microbiome in many different ways. You know, what metabolites they create, I guess, what genes that the species have, what genes that they express. I mean, what proteins that they uh, they give off. Um, I don't know what is proprietary and what's not, but what, I don't know, interesting correlations or things or methods have you found so far where people can uh, make interventions to improve someone's health if they have a problem? Mm-hmm. Well, what we have uh, sort of put together is a profile for a typical patient and, quite frankly, for a typical type of therapy where we ask the question, um, if we take the 11 bacteria that we measure in our quantitative uh, DNA analysis and we sum that to represent a cumulative bacterial load, so think of it as a in form of a mass or, or just and overall quantity. And we asked, what is the effect of a first-line therapy such as scaling and root planing? Well, we can start to uh, quantify the typical, the extraordinary, and then the insufficient response, i.e. in terms of bacterial load reduction. We also can then start to 
characterize when is the best time to measure the absolute decline or absolute nadir of that amount of bacteria. We can then compare that to the effect of scaling and root planning when it's adjunctively used with antibiotics or with a laser or with prebiotics. So we can see the effects of primary and adjunctive therapies on reducing that bacterial load. Now, left to our own devices, after we leave the dental office, we know that those bacterial levels will start to slowly grow back up to those pre-treatment levels. And picture, if you will, sort of a, an open smile line where if over the course of roughly 13 to 15 months, a patient presenting with periodontal disease treated by that dentist, then measured again at approximately 8 to 12 weeks, and then again measured at 3, 6, 9, and 12 months, we can pretty much determine the natural history of that bacterial, uh, that, that complex bacterial set of infections. That profile will differ slightly between patients depending upon their baseline set of health. For example, the regrowth pattern will happen faster in patients who are diabetic or who are under chronic stress or who are immunosuppressed. The solution to that would be more frequent recalls to see that patient more regularly and earlier because you're going to want, again, to suppress those bacterial levels. We can see who's doing a good job in applying those therapies because we know what the statistical uh, average is for the bacterial load reduction. So we can put this in the form of a patient-specific ideogram that hopefully in the future will be useful to clinicians to guide the frequency and the, I guess, the intensity of, of therapeutic choices, all driven by just knowing what bacteria are present and uh, how successfully we can reduce them. Okay. And then uh, your clients are the are dentists or periodontists or individuals? I mean, who do you work with and what kind of products do you have for for people so and for labs? We are a clinical laboratory. So our focus is the management of a collected sample in a dental office or a physician office. And then we produce a test result and then we provide a lot of consultation as to what those test results mean. And through my voice or those of my teammates on the customer service side, you know, we provide a lot of value to helping people know when to add extra treatment modalities, for example. But you ask an interesting question because um, our client base, the customers that we serve, are mostly dentists, some of which are periodontal specialists. But increasingly, and I'd say day by day, the number of calls we receive for new clients are physicians. Physicians are eager to understand why their patients have heart disease, Alzheimer's disease, diabetes. And they have come to know that it's not just about measuring, in one case, cholesterol or glucose in another. It's about understanding if that patient also has good oral health. The biggest challenge is connecting the physicians and the dentists together. And we do the best we can to facilitate exchange, collaboration, consultation, but you'd be surprised the number of physicians who are ordering our test, and with that result, they look in earnest to see if there are local dentists who can take care of their patient to help improve their heart disease, improve their diabetes, improve even their cognitive measures.
Yeah, I'm looking at the website. So, so you have featured tests like my perioph, early warning detection for periodontal disease, alert mm-hmm. two, or always get you HPV. Okay, makes sense. So yeah, so we've added to our this. test menu uh, to, to, to comment on that. Um, you know, whereas we look at bacteria through the test entitled my perioph, when we add a human genetic marker, which help, helps us to characterize or catalog the robustness of a patient's immune response, then we have a fuller picture. How much bacteria are involved in these infections and how robust is the patient's immune response to keep those infections in check? That's the ALERT-2 test. Now, not to be overlooked, there is an epidemic of oral cancer, and that's almost a topic unto itself for a podcast. Um, We are particularly expert in the understanding of HPV, human papillomavirus, and its infection in the mouth, pharynx, the larynx, as a cause of the majority of oral cancers. And so we have used our test to help dentists partake in this discovery of patients who have early oral cancers. To be clear, not different than the periodontal discussion, infection with HPV happens well in advance of there ever being an obvious lesion and hence a cancer in a patient's mouth. Our goal is to help dentists really be part of that preventative uh, effect. Finding infections, hence finding people at risk for these oral cancers well in advance of them uh, seeing uh, you know, a, a horrible lesion. That said, we also get a lot of case material in consultation where a surgeon has removed an enlarged lymph node that shows squamous cell cancer, and we somewhat uniquely are capable of showing that HPV is present or absent in that cancer. That's really important for the selection of therapy and for uh, prognostication for that patient. So oral HPV is part of the other things that happen in the mouth besides periodontal disease. And last but not least, you'll see a test very similar to my periopath, except it's focused on different bacteria, the bacteria that cause dental tooth decay or caries, different bacteria. So we're measuring that quantitatively to help dentists appreciate who are the people at risk? Who harbor the bacteria that causes that acid deposit on the surface of the tooth? That along with diet, looking at the patient directly and using different types of stains and dyes, you can anticipate dental caries. Well, our test actually finds the people who are carrying the bugs in their mouth well in advance of them having these uh, uh, cariogenic lesions. Yeah, I've got a quick question here. Um... I guess so far, knock wood or knock enamel. I'm one of those people that, you know, pretty much has like no cavities and you know, my wife hates me for it and all that, but she has, you know, had plenty of cavities throughout her life and all kinds of difficulties. And I asked my dentist somewhat recently and the, uh, you know, he said, oh, well, it seems to be a dichotomy. You know, people that don't get any cavities have certain problems and then people that get a lot of cavities have other problems. Do you have any knowledge of what that dichotomy is? And on a bacterial level, why that would happen, and you'd have two different types of people with dental health? I'm not entirely sure I know how to respond to that, except that I've heard some dogma, and I don't know if it's substantiated, that people who have a lot of cavities tend not to have a lot of periodontal disease. 
I can't say I can answer that honestly. All I know is that um, periodontal disease is a combination of the bacteria plus the host response, the inflammatory host response. Some people are resistant and some people are sensitive to it. The same tension, if you will, applies to patients who have dental caries. There clearly is a genetic predisposition. I don't believe we've honestly identified what genes are involved in the susceptibility to caries, but, um, but the combination of having the bacteria plus that genetic proclivity uh, is the patient who has a lot of cavities or a lot of periodontal disease, as it were. Okay. Yeah, well, it seems like you know something about it, but if, okay. Well, um, are you guys doing any of your own clinical trials, or is it plenty, you know, with all the inbound uh, test requests for people that are doing trials and, and various studies to elucidate more of what's going on in the mouth? The answer to the question is yes. Uh, so we continue to do our own um, self-supported clinical studies towards the goal of finding more intelligent ways to analyze this data and to package it in ways that can help dentists to be more preventative or to know which course a patient is on. And I described that somewhat earlier to you, this ideogram by taking serial measures with our test. What does that profile look like for a patient, but what does it look like for a typical patient of disease, severity, mild, moderate, or severe? But um, the next step sort of beyond that will be to find ways in which we can make the use of this test simpler. That involves applications of doing the test at home, which is not to say that we're going direct to consumer because that is not allowable at this point in time, but rather to see if the test taken at home is of the same quality as, it, as if it was collected in the dental office. This can operationalize the use of that test for a lot more patients. It's simple, the information is there when you come to visit, and we can act upon it immediately rather than waiting two or three days for the result to come back. So those are the kinds of directions we're going. But I guess to the first part of, your, of this interview, which was we're also looking for other types of tests packaged in simpler or more complex forms that provide more information. Case in point, what do I do, for example, with a patient who has an unexpected bacterial profile when the clinician tells me that they have severe inflammation, bone loss, and there's evidence of the risk of tooth loss? That does happen. Is our test wrong? No. It could be. It could be that there are other bacteria, which we happen not to be measuring, that might be involved. But... We also have found that it's not always bacteria. For example, we have a goodly number of cases now demonstrated that flare-ups of herpes simplex virus, we know it in the form of aphthous ulcers or canker sores, sometimes occur deep, deep in the periodontal pocket. When that inflammation arises, the tooth is made vulnerable and the periodontal disease gets worse. So we've been advising clinicians of late not to just think that the test is there to simply confirm that which they see with their eyes, but sometimes they need to go to a second tier or a third tier of testing to really find the true culprit. And this is the right way to use the clinical laboratory, an algorithmic approach that common things happen commonly, 
and we have a library of uh, backup tests to help eventually find the, the, the culprit. Um, and we spend a lot of time um, working with our, our professional colleagues in explaining this use of the clinical laboratory. It's the most economical and judicious way to do it. And as a background, I'm a pathologist, so it's about how the laboratory can contribute every day to the care of patients um, not always to give you the yes answer, but sometimes to create the scenario that I need to look further, look for additional um, information through other tests. Okay. No, no, that's fair. Well, very good. Well, Ronald, um, we're coming to the end of time. What's the best way for people to, uh, to find out more? And if they go to their doctor, they go to their dentist, periodontist, whatever, to say, hey, do you know about these tests by oral DNA labs? And can you order them for me because of X, Y, or Z? Like, how can people take action if they're concerned? Where do they go from here? Simplest thing to do is uh, to go to our website, uh, www.oraldna.com, oraldna.com. We have an extraordinary customer service department who is very personable and will speak to any level of questioning. But the simplest first step for a patient or an interested person is that we can use our doctor finder and find a provider uh, in their locale, and that's where the conversation can continue. Uh, for dentists or healthcare professionals interested, same pet process, reach out to us through a customer service. We can create an account online in just a, a matter of a few minutes. Um, we make test kits available to your office. They don't they come at no charge to the office until the test is actually ordered for a patient. And then it's all done electronically through a simple registration through a web-based uh, delivery of the report. But I think equally important to our business, which is running laboratory tests, is the fact that we are here to provide a lot of consultation to a profession that is relatively new to the use of the clinical laboratory. It's important to allow other professional specialties in so we can put the pieces of the puzzle together and just start at the website. That's all I can offer up. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Ron, thank you for coming. It's been a very interesting call. I appreciate it. My pleasure. It's a pleasure speaking with you, and thank you for your insightful questions. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. 
No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.